This is Lee Cure, a podcast for conversations from the heart of the continent on Indigenous languages, music, culture, and art in the Age of Reconciliation. Thank you, merci, and miigwech for listening. Anin, bonjour, tansi. I am Brina Link, the communications assistant for Lee Cure, Heart of the North. And hello, I'm Hannah Connolly, the production assistant. To give some context to this podcast, Lee Cure, Riel's Heart of the North is a dramatic musical written by Métis poet and librettist Dr. Suzanne Steele and composer Neil Wisenzel. The words Lee Cure mean the heart in the Métis language of Machif. Dr. Steele is writing the text of Lee Cure in the indigenous language of Anishinaabe Moin, which is the language of the Soto and Ojibwe peoples, and three dialects of Lee Michifs, as well as French and English. This project is in collaboration with a large team of Indigenous translators, Deborah Beach Ducharme, Donna Beach, Dr. Agathe Chartrand, Joyce Dumont, Dr. Lorraine Cachula-Vallée, Suzanne Zecca, Dr. June Bruce, Jules Chartrand, and Verna de Montigny, as well as our archivist, Vic Froze. This musical explores the love and lives of Louis Riel's pre-resistant life the Métis and kin of the heart of the 1870s continent on fire with change. This production honors the enduring strength of Indigenous and Métis women. Hello, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to episode seven of the Lee Kerr podcast. We haven't had an episode in a couple weeks, mostly because my co-host Brina and I have been digging deep back into our studies. However, our guest today is a very special person. His name is Tristan DeRocher, and he is a Métis activist, musician, and fiddle teacher from northern Saskatchewan. I won't say too much about him for now because he will be telling us his story during the interview. However, most recently, he has completed a walk from Larange, Saskatchewan to Regina, ending with a 44-day fast on the legislative grounds in protest of the fact that a suicide prevention bill was voted down by Saskatchewan MLAs. We hope that you are inspired by him, just as we are here at Lee Cure. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoy. Our sound quality in today's episode is a little different from our other episodes, mostly because we had some trouble and had to conduct the interview via Zoom. But the quality of the conversation, I hope, will make up for any sound issues. So I guess, yeah, just to start, can you maybe just tell us a bit about your background, where you're from, and your family? I'm from a northern Saskatchewan community called Buffalo Narrows, and it's a small Métis village, essentially. Okay. And my family, we're all Métis, we're the Derochers, mm-hmm. but then my father's side is the Chartiers. Okay. And uh, so the Shorchi side is very grounded in their Métis cultural identity, like a distant relative of mine is Clement Shorchi. He's the president of the Métis National Council. Okay, wow. And I have a deceased uncle, Philip Shorchi, who was, who was part of the Métis political scene of, of Northwestern Saskatchewan. Hmm. But then my, my mother's side, like my matriarchal lineage, um, we have a lot of Indigenous and Cree matriarchs who lived on the land on the trap line and have a really grounded 
cultural identity and um and so i kind of have both this this side of the family with a foot in both worlds so to speak and then the side of the family that is still very much rooted in the old world of spirituality pre-contact hmm. hmm. that's really interesting do you so you were you would do you still live there or have you moved since then I have since moved to a northern Manitoban community okay. called Thompson. And the okay. reason I did that yeah. is because the Frontier School Division has a fiddle program that they offer in schools across the entire division okay. as an elective, like they could sign up like it's shop or home ec. And so I teach fiddle and I have 380 students across five different schools, all of them north of Thompson. Wow. Great. So saying yeah, you're busy like, is not an understatement. <laughs> no. And so after the fiasco of this entire summer, mm -hmm. I have the month of October to do all of the schedulings of people wanting to speak and speaking engagements for different, you know, things. Mm -hmm. Although crowd sizes and stuff is limited, while the weather's still warm, there is some outdoor community things happening. So mm -hmm. I'm going to be zigzagging around Saskatchewan hmm. until literally the last week before I leave to Thompson to get ready to go back to school into the uncertainty of how am I going to deliver my music program to children, keeping them safe during a pandemic. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> a lot to think about for sure. Yeah. yeah. But right on. Good for you. So since you were talking about the fiasco of a summer, would you be able to explain what you did this summer for those of our listeners who might not be familiar with your recent endeavors? Well, I'll give you a nice brief overview of the entire story from start to finish. What happened was I was in my bedroom and this was days after an uncle had just passed away from terminal lung cancer. So I was really mm -hmm. grieving his loss, but this was also during a lockdown when I found myself bored with nothing else to do other than like read a bunch of journalism for like four hours a day. So I was kind of a little bit anxious and stressed out, Black Lives Matter, the COVID pandemic. And as I was going through the CBC, I stumbled upon an article that basically told the story of a suicide prevention bill in the Legislative Assembly of Saskatchewan being unanimously voted down by the political majority in power, who as of now is the Saskatchewan party. And although I wasn't really invested in the provincial political scene and who was elected where and what was happening, what I did know is first-hand experiential knowledge of the profound depth of the suicide crisis across northern Saskatchewan. So when I saw that they voted down a, a really band-aid solution type, not even all-encompassing bill that just wanted it acknowledged as a problem and treated as like, say, as seriously as a public health crisis, mm -hmm. I thought that was completely unacceptable. Mm -hmm. And part of how I deal with my, with my grief and also uncertainty and anxiousness is I really, really love to walk. It's when I listen to my podcasts and audiobooks and new music that I'm trying to study because I'm a musician. And so I go for really long walks. And during this lockdown, I found myself walking about 11 kilometers a day to like oh, wow. on average, like sometimes it would be longer depending on how bad the day was. <laughs> and so after I read that article, I was like, I need to do something, I need to do something. And I didn't really know what. 
But within 20 minutes, the idea came to me to do a walk from a cemetery in Aaron, Saskatchewan, which is my hometown and my mother's mm -hmm. little home reserve that she belongs to, like the Indian band there, mm -hmm. and walk from there to Regina to do um, a teepee setup and to fast for 44 days to make part of the public dialogue those 44 members of the political party that had a majority voting down that that prevention bill and so that's what i did from the day i had the idea to the mm -hmm. day we took our first step was 11 days mm -hmm. i planned all of the logistics in a matter of 11 days and the logistics were very simple which one of my friends aren't doing anything well all of them <laughs> And uh, which one of them is adventurous enough to uh, want to sit in a car and take turns driving and possibly walking 635 kilometers down a highway with me in the month of July. And out of the friends I had in the family, five people, including me. So I had four friends aside from myself who joined me. And that's what we did. The rest is, is I guess, public history now because um, a lot of articles have been written about the various outcomes and, and what mm -hmm. happened. But essentially, it was just me um, deciding that I'm going to be walking off my grief, my, my uncertainty anyway. I might as well walk for something bigger than just my own anxiety and for the greater public good. Mm -hmm. um, so would you like see that as a form of ceremony what you did it absolutely was because unfortunately although there were some political motivations of wanting to call for action and have the the provincial government honor their responsibility to provide mental health services to the residents of saskatchewan I also knew that some form of healing and, and ceremonial acknowledgement and recognition of the young people we've lost across Saskatchewan, a majority Indigenous, needed to happen. It needed to happen for their families who were still hurting. It needed to happen for their spirits and their closure. But it also needed to happen for all of the young people who may be struggling with suicidal ideation and who may need some kind of spark of hope and some publicly visible acknowledgement of mm -hmm. us as in the community at large cares about them doesn't want to lose them and some are doing everything they can to make sure we don't lose them and to provide them with as much hope as they want and so in order for this to be successful it couldn't just be political it needed to be ceremonial we began in a graveyard in Erange with with a drum group and and prayers and through each city we had a, a sharing circle there wasn't necessarily a set stage with a microphone and a podium where only a limited amount of voices were able to speak every every city we passed we had a circle of people and in that circle, all of their voices were equal, including with mine. And I did more listening than talking during the duration of this walk. And that is part of a ceremony. 
is having that sharing circle where all voices are heard, are mattered, and are treated with the same weight and respect. Yeah. So, so you did the walk, and then you ended at the Saskatchewan Legislator in Regina. Is that correct? Yes. And then you spent 44 days fasting. So was there significance behind the number 44? And also, why did you choose fasting as your form of protest? The significance behind the number 44, which is the number of days I fasted for on the Waskana Park West Lawn, was that is how many politicians voted down a suicide prevention bill okay. that wasn't even really asking for much. So to me, that was a confident um, disregard mm -hmm. for the public health and well-being of disproportionately Indigenous people who are, you know, passing away because of suicide. And I wanted that number remembered. Yeah. And so that is why I chose that to be the amount of days I would fast for. And why a fast? Well, in the beginning, it wasn't public knowledge that my fast would end at 44 days. That came later. For me, I always knew when the end day was. And for my team, my close personal family, they knew when the end date was. But for the media, for the public, for people following us, for supporters, they believed it was indefinite. And the thing about a fast is time is of the essence. It cannot go on for forever. And for the government to break my fast, they needed to act. And I wanted to put as much pressure on them, as much public scrutiny on them as I could for them to act as quickly as they could. Because when it comes to a suicide crisis, every day counts. Where is the urgency? Where is the will to act? I was going to light a fire under them and watch them jump. Unfortunately, I was being dragged to court yeah. for the breaking of bylaws on the Waskana Park West Lawn because where I had my teepee and my fast, fires aren't allowed. You're also not allowed to erect permanent structures. And for some reason, a teepee is designated a permanent structure. Hmm. and you're not allowed to spend the night. And so I broke these bylaws and they were taking me to court. Mm -hmm. And I thought, okay, well, if we publicly disclose that this has an end date and it's not indefinite, perhaps the government will withdraw their, their court injunction. Uh, that didn't happen. They took me to court anyway. But publicly revealing that we wish to end the date on the 44th, you know, the fast on the 44th day, have a feast, etc., kind of solidified the religious freedom argument hmm. that was the constitutional basis of my lawyer's arguments. So I had to publicly disclose, but really my fast was to put pressure on the government yeah. as well as be a symbolic, my hunger is the hunger of all of the people who are hurting for help and it's the hunger of all of our youth who are starving for justice, for hope, for change, for equality. And it was a solidarity act of I am hungry with you. That's really beautiful. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah, it's so important to have that spiritual aspect and acknowledgement, even in political conversation. So I really admire you for bringing that as such an important part of your protest. Yeah. 
You mentioned during your fast that a lot of cookums came to sit with you and share. Is there anything that they spoke about that really resonated with you? There are many things that we spoke about because we spoke for close to five hours a day. Oh, wow, yeah. But I'm going to just sum up in a beautiful little soundbite what a cookum had said. And she said this when we had a visit by the National Chief of the Assembly of First Nations, Perry Bellegarde. Mm. When Perry came to visit my teepee, and I took him around the portrait gallery, brought him inside, um, gifted him a small feather from an eagle and said, this is to remind you of our youth who you should be fighting for every single day, who should be the foundation of all the work you do, their betterment, their survival, their health, their hope, their healing. Um, he came out of my teepee and I introduced him to a real firecracker doesn't hold back, totally grounded in truth and honesty, elder named Brenda Dubois. Okay. And I call her Cookum Brenda. And I took Perry to Cookum Brenda because I knew Cookum Brenda would have something to say. Because <laughs> she's like one of the bravest Cookums I've ever met. And Perry Balgard looked at her and said, it's an honor to meet you Cookum. Thank you for all your hard work. And he reached out his hand. And instead of reaching for his hand, she lit a cigarette and said, Perry, the Cookums are tired. How come we got to do all the heavy lifting? <laughs> oh, that's amazing. And so to sum up all of the discussions and talks I've had with the Cookums during the 44-day duration of my ceremony and the hours we spent visiting daily, they were telling me about all the work they've been doing and I've been made more aware of a lot of really heavy burdens placed on the backs of the grandmothers within indigenous communities mm -hmm. and how, to be brief, the Cookums are very tired mm. and there needs to be more people coming forward to help them. And, and and lighten the load, so to speak. And so if you want a little clarification for what is that burden, I will give you a personal example of, of a woman who's close to my heart, who I really love, but who I won't name. But basically, she's raised five children. Mm -hmm. She's raised some of her children's children that's multiple generations of children that one cookum who's already raised five is now doing and and this is an important important thing to consider because her children have jobs her children have houses but as often happens in northern and demographically disproportionately indigenous communities, there is a lot of unhealed trauma that manifests itself in alcoholism mm. and drug addiction. And so to quote a Rupi Carr poem, the thing about my father is he never stayed sober long enough to be one. All of those children who don't have a father sober long enough to be one tend to have very limited options. Mm -hmm. 
a mother who's lucky enough in her young age to break through the racist barriers set up against her, the discriminatory barriers set up against her in the workplace, in the public sphere, to be financially independent enough to raise her children, or the foster system, or the grandmother. And a lot of communities, it's the grandmothers raising their grandchildren. That's not an unheard of thing. Mm -hmm. And the sad part is, is they're not raising orphans. They're raising children whose parents, because of the heavy hooks of very addictive substances and the resurfacing, shall we say, um, heavy barrier of unhealed trauma, they, they're just unable to really meaningfully keep a safe space and home for a child. And, and that's not something that's like an indigenous inherent flaw within our DNA that we just don't know how to raise our children. That's actually the successful completion of the very rigid and violent colonizing machine that was manifested as the residential school system. Um, I had a residential school survivor tell me they trained us to be addicted and afflicted. Like they, they were ripped away from their families, some as young as six years old. Some of those, reserve, those schools were purposely made in very remote locations so they couldn't visit their family even on holidays. And when they got out of an institution that aimed to dehumanize, demoralize, and, and disenfranchise any sense of self-worth and belonging, for generations of children, what you have is some communities where there are parents who were never taught to parent, who, who were taken as children and whose families always had their children taken. And so we're free to just kind of sit in their grief, in their brokenness, in their unhealthy, destructive coping mechanisms. And the last door to the last residential school didn't close until 1996. That was 24 years ago. And so, no, we cannot expect all of these cycles set in motion by that institution to be broken overnight when there are a lot of living people who still have experiential knowledge and living memory of the trauma inflicted there. Mm -hmm. So to be brief, the Cookums are tired. I spoke to the Cookums at length about the amount of work they're doing in the absence sometimes of their children, but primarily their sons and how it's taking a toll. And the thing about an old Cookum is she's not gonna be here forever. So the question then becomes, when these Cookums are ready to pass on and leave this, this world, who's going to carry forth the work that in brief can be described as building circles of protection around our children. I highly doubt it will be domestically violent, afflicted and addicted individuals. Mm -hmm. And I highly doubt it will be 
some of the teenagers being raised today to believe that success is money and money is working far away wherever you need to make the paycheck and leaving your communities, your families, your friends behind because that's what successful people do. And I highly doubt it will be the state that funded the residential school system to begin with and that currently funds a child welfare system where in the province of Saskatchewan in 2020 alone, 19 children have died in care. So not only are the Cookums tired, but they're quite concerned of what will be the state of their work that they may be leaving unfinished. And so part of what my walk was is to give the Cookums hope, as well as the children, hope that when they're ready to leave this world, they're not leaving it behind with nobody in sight who's ready to continue the crucial and essential work of doing everything they can to contribute to our people's healing and to contribute to our children's safety and well-being. So you, yeah, you said the word hope and these are obviously such like hard and complex issues and then you bring in mental health and suicide prevention. So where do you find hope in that? I can't speak for everybody else, but in my life, music has always been the spark that reignites the flame that is my hope. And when I would be in dark times, or my community would be in dark times, it was always the music I went to as a symbolic shelter from the storm. And it's a very cathartic healing release of grief in a way that cannot be destructive, but only really cathartic healing and constructive. So that's what I dedicated a lot of my young self to in the hours after school is is my music i'm a fiddle player and for me how i'm trying to help aside from the demonstration of this past summer which is over now rekindle the hope of of young people in indigenous northern communities is by teaching fiddle for a northern school division and trying to give this beautiful thing called music to the hands of children who I believe really need it most and trying to give all of my music and songs that I've been playing since I was young to people who need it and know it's not wealthy individuals living in cities who hire me to play at conference halls and banquets and fundraisers and and different different um, like city-based privileged audience type thing they don't need my music although i've been making a dime playing for them since i graduated from high school in 2014 i'm ready to now take my music where i believe it is needed and that is in northern communities across manitoba um, because currently this program doesn't exist in saskatchewan hmm. so I can't really stay home and, and have as broad a reach with, with the pedagogy of the music as I can going to Manitoba. So I'm switching provinces over, but really Northern Manitoba politically, 
economically, historically, mirrors northern Saskatchewan. So it is part of my homeland, so to speak. There's just an, an imaginary line drawn by the state architects of Canada through this beautiful boreal forest where Cree live and Métis live mm -hmm. and people who I'm probably related to live. Mm -hmm. So that brings me to my next question. Like what, what's the role of music as an art form in truth and reconciliation? Music has always been the expression of truth, maybe not a linguistic one, yeah. But I suppose the, the truth of the heart and, and what's, what's in your heart and what's in your spirit. And so when you want to talk about reconciliation, there needs to be two parties who are willing to be honest and open and truthful with each other. Human to human, heart to heart. And what made the residential school system possible the clearing of the plains with Sir John A. Macdonald's genocidal policies possible, what made General Custer taking a Gatling gun to Batosh to be used on civilians, even children in a church that had a white surrender flag outside of it possible, was dehumanizing and demoralizing racist ideologies, which are an ideological weapon of genocidal colonialism and so with that you have a demoralized dehumanized demographic that's been demonized by racist language how can the public speak and reconcile with them when there is still a lot of people in the public who don't fully see their humanity and who still have some of the racist residues of this indoctrinated colonial past. Justice Minister Marie Sinclair, who was the chair of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission said, all of the inferiority taught to indigenous people in residential schools about them being less than and not of equal value or potential was also taught to the rest of Canada. So all the decolonizing of our indigenous minds who have been, to quote that elder, taught to be addicted and afflicted, needs to also reach the predominant body politic. And first and foremost, I see a lot of indigenous artists and musicians at the forefront of the crucial work that is trying to humanize the indigenous personhood to a public taught to be indifferent and to view them through a very racist lens. So when I fiddle on stages, and there were times when I was young and I would be invited to Lieutenant Governor garden parties, or I'd be invited to banquets where like say a governor general would be, or I was invited for sitting prime ministers, the reason these organizations and, and people were trying to push me into these spaces, because I was an example of our children have potential. Our children have beautiful music inside of them, intelligence and hopeful 
constructive expenditures of their grief and their anger in, in art. We matter is what my leaders were trying to say as they plopped a child me on stage in front of people in positions of influence and power. And so what is music's role in reconciliation, our art's role in reconciliation? Well, it's helping to humanize us and to have a public listening whose hearts are moved by something that we produce have to come to terms with the fact that yes, we indigenous people can produce things of quality and artistic value. There is an artist named Alex Janvier. Feel free to look him up. He was a member of the indigenous group of seven and he taught himself how to paint in a residential school. And his art has traveled the world. And he told me that his art comes from his heart and that he never allows it to come from anywhere else because in his words, and I quote, there's enough intellectual crap out there. With oh. my fiddle music, it comes from the heart. I hope it reaches the hearts of others. And as my music reaches the hearts of some people who may have prior to hearing it, held on to racist preconceived notions of indigenous people not really being of the capacity to produce things of beauty and grace. And so my music is also a form of decolonization and an attempt to wake up a comatose public who is still sleeping in a dream of very dark stories that were never told to inform, but were told to dehumanize and justify the unequal, inhumane treatment of human beings. Thanks for sharing that. Um, we're gonna wrap up because we're just about out of time. But one final question, what is the best way that someone can support you and your music and your cause? Well, our cause is, is regional. As for the walk to the Saskatchewan Legislative Assembly goes. And so people within the province of Saskatchewan can support by voting. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to tell them who to vote for, but they should vote for people with an understanding of Indigenous realities and a will and drive to do something to have the state honor their fiduciary responsibilities to provide mental health services to the residents of Saskatchewan. As for the broader public at large, they can support my message of our lives matter and we are deserving human beings of a good quality of life and quality of being by being kind to young indigenous people they meet who may be walking through a terrain of very potentially lethal indifference as they walk through life in the province that is Canada. Because although in our cities, everything's sunshine and rainbows and what am I gonna order at Starbucks today? There are a lot of young indigenous children who believe the light at the end of the tunnel from, for their, some of their gang infested, drug infested communities is moving to a city for a better future. And then they move to a city like Saskatoon where they're doing starlight tours 
Are they moving to a city like North Battleford where there's a court hearing for Gerald Stanley and he's totally acquitted of all charges for, for a, a, essentially a murder? Um, they need all the hope they can get. So how could you support me? Well, be part of that gifting of hope to other human beings who need it. And not to make yourself feel good because it is, but because it is your human obligation to do so because you would expect the same for you. So why not give that to others? I just want to say like merci and miigwech for everything you've shared and all the awareness that you have brought. This stands really close to my heart. It was very difficult through when you were talking about the cookums not to be able to cry. I was tearing up through it. So I wasn't able to speak much, but I really want to send my heart out to you and to all the ones that are suffering and just miigwech and merci again. Well, thank you so much for giving me the space and time to speak to you guys. When Tristan was speaking, it was like he was, it was almost like the ancestors and the grandmothers and everything that were speaking through him for such a young man to have such a strong vision and such a strong, powerful spirit to be able to develop that walk within 11 days and do the walk and do the fast and to make this awareness is absolutely incredible. And it's what we need our younger indigenous people to do is to be able to take over the jobs of the cookums and why that resonated with me so much as as i'm about to tear up now is like within my peace and conflict transformation studies at the canadian mennonite university i am working towards my degree and after that going within the northern communities to help the children to make them have a safe place to make sure they don't enter the child welfare system to take on the jobs of the cookums and it was almost like clarification that i'm doing something right and I just, I admire him unbelievably. And it was an honor to speak to him. As a final reflection on Tristan's words, I would like to encourage those listening to this podcast to really take a step out and look for a concrete way that they can contribute to truth and reconciliation. As we've spoken of in pretty much all of our podcasts, relationship building is the first step to any kind of reconciliation. And that starts with individuals taking initiative and reaching out to others who maybe aren't in their direct circle of influence. We all need to be proactive. And as Tristan said, be welcoming and speak life to those we encounter especially Indigenous youth and young adults who have often been ignored. Mental health can only be restored with connection, so let's do our part. Now it's time for a segment we like to call Anishinaabe Moen Phrase of the Day. Let's smudge. Nuk Wezi Geda. Thank you, Marseille and Miigwech, for listening to the Leak Your Podcast today. If you liked what you heard, you can find other episodes on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or on our Podbean website. All you need to do is Google Leak Your Podcast. If you'd like to follow us on social media, you can find us on Twitter at Louis Riel, H-O-T-N, on Instagram at Heart of the North Riel, and on Facebook at Riel Heart of the North. We hope you have a wonderful day.